Doesn't matter if you hit your mic before. You're just not doing. No promises. Sometimes I get heated. I can't help it. <laughs> Angry. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 29 of Assassin's Quest, The Rooster Crown. Cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of this chapter goes into a little bit of an outline and detail of the Mountain Kingdom's game where those runes on the skill pillars we were talking about or the similarities to those runes come from. I didn't really see too much importance in this passage did you oh um i just thought it was really interesting it just goes on to talk about how it's a really old game and i think that part interests me because so part of the game is that there's cards the size of your palm and they have ancient figures from lore on them and then there's also all the runes and you get three cards and a few runes so that everybody has some and then you have to play them strategically and it just sounds first of all like a really fun game and i hope there's a game developer out there who really likes the series and decides to try to make something out of this because i would play it <laughs> unfortunately there's like there's no rules about it at all <laughs> that's not true you have to play your cards and runes together to be the most powerful one. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. It is a complex game to learn and a difficult one to master. And all we know that there are some runes, rune chips, and cards. And that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you wager on things. I would also like to point out that the stone, the rune chips themselves are made from a gray stone peculiar to the mountains. And I was wondering if you think this is like a type of skill stone or no. if this is just. I think it's just kind of rock. a readily available stone that's, <laughs> that's in, fair. That's fair. in the mountains. That was the only other thing of import that I noticed that I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's important rock from the mountain kingdom. But with the short epigraph finished, we jump in to the chapter where Fitz is reeling from the knowledge bomb that Kettle has just dropped on him. He doesn't really know how to react. He doesn't want to know more because he's heard enough about death in his life and he doesn't want to pry her too much and realizes that she knows way more than he even thought. And she's going to, to decide when he gets to know. Yeah. He specifically says that a hundred questions spring up in his mind, but he knows better not to ask them. And he also, like you said, doesn't really want to talk about it, but he's also very curious because that's a kind of a big line to just kind of drop. Right. Like, Oh, by the way, I killed a coterie member and I was excommunicated from the coterie and that's, exiled from the six touches. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And this is someone he's been looking for because 
before this, they were looking for Coterie members. And he doesn't know that this isn't the most recent Coterie group. This is, like, well before that. Right. So, yeah, it's, I'm sure, a lot for him to take in. And Night Eyes wants to be comforting. He tells Fitz to tell her that killing within pack is unfortunate, but it happens sometimes. And Fitz is like, uh, I'll tell her later. <laughs> Not right now, but I think Night Eyes is right. Maybe it would have been nice if he would have offered a little bit of comfort in that way. Maybe. It just seems a little bit blunt. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, maybe in that kind of situation you'd want blunt. <laughs> when they get back to camp... They announce what they did by um, killing the guards, driving off the horses, that sort of thing. And it makes note that Starling is kind of staring at them wide-eyed. Again, a little bit disillusioned from her probably images of grandeur and heroism. Things that are not realistic for the group that she is in. I know she's encountered the real world before and is probably trying to see the best in like the queen's group that is going to save the kingdom but right realistically this is who Fitz is and that's the best choice to make right and to be fair it's really easy to think that only bad guys make moves that are evil but the reality of life in general is that there are good and bad choices made on both sides of any dispute so, Ketrickin lets Fitz know that the fool is seeming to do a little bit better, and Fitz checks, and he seems to feel cooler, and he continues to check on him through the night, and, through the night, and it seems like he might actually be getting better. Mm-hmm. I do want to make a note before we get to that night. He, they are having soup for dinner, and he says, specifically says for an instant it smelled good then it smelled like the remains of the soup the panicked guards had spilled on the snowy road and i just wanted to point that out a little bit because fitz is still hasn't come to terms with who he is and what he was trained to do he's still not okay with being an assassin and i just wanted to kind of bring that up again because we don't talk it talk about it every episode or need to talk about it every episode but it is a, an important part of who he is that he is confused on what he should be or what direction he needs to take and trying to, you know, compare that and relate that to who he actually is and how he lives his life and what he needs to do. Right. And I think it also shows something that we haven't seen in a really long time that Fitz is still struggling with delivering death to people and i think the last couple instances where this happened we get little peaks of that but they're kind of brushed aside because fitz is on this like revenge rampage so it doesn't really affect him as much as it has in the past and last book even he's spending a whole summer killing forged ones he's not talking about the aftermath of that on himself so This is just a little insight to Fitz, even after all the death he has delivered, still feels bad and is suffering (laughs) the consequences from having to live after killing somebody. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really interesting because he made note last chapter of Kettle seeming to not do well 
with the idea of these people being dead, but he also isn't coping super well, better than Kettle because he's more used to it. But I think it's good to see that he isn't as callous as he seems to think he is right. about it. Well, he's not anything how he seems to think he is about right. things. <laughs> True. <laughs> but in their dinner talk, Ketrickin also lets Fitz know that she thinks the fool has gone through this sickness before when they were in Blue Lake traveling to the mountains to get away from Regal. So there's hope that this really is just something that is that happens to his kind that doesn't happen to them. And not as serious as Fitz seems to be worried it is. Right. She also asks if he came across the Coterie members, to which Fitz says no, but he knows that they were there based off of the items that were in the pack. Yeah, clothing that seemed to belong to each of the members, Carrot, Burl, and Will. Yes. He also says to him, well, he thinks... I took no pride in what I had done, nor would I completely believe it until I saw their bones, meaning that the mountain would make an end to them without their supplies and things like that. So he he says that to himself, but he seems to kind of relax a little bit more. That's like, okay, I scattered their supplies, killed their guards. They're probably done for. Right. You know, they're, they're probably not dead yet until I see their bodies. But, you know, they're taken care of for now. Yeah, they're probably not going to attack us tonight, at the very least. So we're safe. And Kettle kind of... (laughs) Kettle kind of reminds him and snaps him out of that a little bit. Right. She says, When they get back to the pillar, they will recognize your handiwork and come hunting you. Do you not think so? I knew it was so, but it was still unsettling to hear it spoken aloud. I wish Ketrickin and Starling were not listening and watching us. And then she makes him play the game again. She wants to keep his mind strong. Right. Because the game is what protects against the skill. It is somehow fortifying his walls against the skill. I don't know if it's ever actually in depth explained why it works, but the premise seems to be that you're filling your mind with something so fully that nothing else can get in. Yep. I think it's just occupying his mind with that puzzle, you know, right. just so he can't think of anything else, concentrating so hard on it. And since it is a complicated game, it has the nuance to fill up your mind. Right. And it's really interesting because we're seeing Fitz really struggle to keep up this guard, which is I guess he hasn't been doing the best job of it the whole way, but he's at least been trying pretty hard. And now he just he knows how close the three of them, the three of the Coterie members are to his campsite physically and that they can be with him mentally at any point. And yet he's like, well, no need to be careful anymore. They're probably going to be dead soon anyways. And so it's. I thought that was really interesting because it doesn't make any sense. Like, well, we have to remember that it's, he's on the skill road still. That's true. So and things that's are really fuzzy. distracting. And that's also partially why Kettle is doing this the stone game. That's right. initially why she started, to keep him concentrated and there fully instead of wandering. Right. But are they on the skill road right now or just on the side of a mountain? Because I thought they there was a whole avalanche thing. I didn't know they just like 
crossed over the top of the mountain to get to a different part of the road. Yeah, part of the road had been blown out basically by the avalanche, but they crossed through that to get to the other side of the road. Oh, that's not at all what I understood it to be. Yeah, they're they're still on the road. They they mention it later uh, when Fitz is walking, and he's I think mentions to the fool that he'll just walk alongside of the road, right? Instead, well, I figured that they get back to the road, but I thought tonight they're not on the road because they made the whole big deal about how they don't want to be followed, so they need to hide. They're still near enough to it, right? So that's like the right. only flat area around, and that's still distracting enough. I guess I don't know why I read that as not being. Okay. Yeah, and so while they're playing these games, Kettle is still trying to encourage him, direct him on the right path, and again reminds him that they are still dangerous, they are still behind him. And Fitz says, I hope they'll be dead. I said with a cheer I did not feel. Not that easily, Kettle replied, unknowing of how her words chilled me. You said it was warmer down in the city. Once they see they've no supplies, they'll go back to the city. They have water there, and I'm sure they took that at least some supplies for the day. I don't think we can dis- disregard them yet, do you? I suppose not. I just wish, I said quietly, that I could simply sleep for a time, alone in my mind, dreaming my own dreams, without fearing where I'll go or who might attack me, without fearing that my hunger for the skill will overcome me. Just simple sleep. I spoke to her directly, knowing now she understood well what I meant. I can't give you that, Kettle told me calmly. All I can give you is the game. Trust it. It's been used by generations of skill users to keep such dangers at bay. And he says that as he lays down for sleep, he keeps the game in front of his eyes. Right. So first, super heartbreaking that Fitz is like at his wits end. This is a really hard Just journey. Let me rest. Yeah, please, please let me have some normal sleep for once. And he doesn't get that respite. But also, I do want to point out that the game has to be helping in some capacity because Fitz is kind of getting stronger about warding off the skill. I think that's fair to say because. I mean, every once in a while, his guard is let down and stuff comes rushing in. But for the most part, since they have been like stricter about playing the game, he hasn't really had any wandering. There has been no more of the loss in the memories. Yeah. Or not really him not really remembering who the people are around him. Yeah. Or the like weird passages of time. He's fully attentive. And honestly, that would be really exhausting to not be able to let your mind wander at all for days on end. That impossible for me. But <laughs> but I think it is helping. I mean, it's been a couple chapters since he's had issues focusing on the present. Besides not including while he was in Kelsingra because and even then he was cognizant mostly of what was going on as soon as he figured out that the ghosts weren't real. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think she's helping him. <laughs> He's able to learn. Yeah, definitely. And so as he settles down to sleep, he tries to keep that in mind, but he's waking up during the night, just checking on, you know, the fool checking to see the, how the watches are going, that sort of thing. Just his anxious mind going. And he notices that night eyes is sharing Ketcherkin's watch with her. 
And just short of dawn, he says, he stirs once more to find all still and quiet. He checks the fool and lays back down, hoping to find some last bit of sleep. Instead, in horrific detail, I beheld a great eye, as if the closing of my own eyes had opened this one. I struggled to open my own eyes again. I floundered desperately toward wakefulness, but I was held. He's struggling, he's underneath this eye, and it's watching him. Not Will's, Regal's. He stared at me, and I knew he took delight in my struggles. It seemed effortless for him to hold me there like a fly under a glass bowl. Yet even in my panic, I knew that if he had done more than hold me, he would. He had got past my walls, but had not the power to do more than threaten me. That was still enough to make my heart pound with terror. Bastard, he said fondly. The word broke over my mind like a cold ocean wave. I was drenched in its threat. Bastard, I know about the child. And your woman. Molly. Tit for tat, bastard. He threatens Molly and fits cries out in fear and breaks from that dream. And it bolts out of the tent, just sweating. Right. With no shoes, no coat, just out in the cold to calm down. And I think this is really interesting. Number one, because Regal is heading this and that feels like a interesting choice to me that he heard that, Fitz had disposed of the guards he sent with his coterie and he's immediately like, we're going to find him now so I can threaten him with a giant eyeball, which not the most threatening of images. Scary. Sure. But uh, you would think he would do something more scary. I don't know. He's evil. (laughs) But I also think it's interesting that he threatens Fitz with saying that he knows about the child and Molly, which we already knew that he knew who Molly was because he's been paying for her candles since forever. Not anymore, obviously, but (laughs) at one point he was. But also he says tit for tat. And I don't understand how on earth what this tit for tat is. What did Fitz do to him? What I did, mean, what did Fitz not do to him in Regal's mind? But Fitz is the all evil other that his mother warned him about that is usurping his claim to the throne that is messing with his whole rule. He's organizing all of the rebellion against him. He organized the coastal duchies against him. He's the the bad person in his story. But he already killed him once and He's threatening him, you know? I know. It just, I don't understand, like, what, I get that he's, like, the big bad in Regal's eyes. But it feels like such a specific, like, an eye for an eye, I'd say. But what eye did he pluck that is the equivalent to his, like, woman and child? Killed the Coterie members? Does he care about the Coterie members that much? And that was well before. But the two Coterie members he killed was before he was beat up in the dungeon. So I feel like that was already, that debt's paid. And, like, the other people he has killed so far in Regal's care are not necessarily high-up people close to Regal. They're just guards. I don't think he 
cares though sure he doesn't care personally for them but he cares about the perception of power and mm. you can't let somebody get one up over you you know okay this this makes this scene makes perfect sense to me in regal for regal's character one yes fits he, he's obviously going to learn about what fits did because right. he's like a parasite attached to will and i'm sure they're in constant constant communication with the coterie he's trying for all the power he can so he's probably riding with will the whole time 24 hours a day like Faraday did with Fitz, except worse, worse. Yes. To learning that Fitz got one up on him, ambushed the guards and tried to harm their expedition is going to make Regal fly into a rage and probably made the coterie right then and there try their hardest to find him and break through his walls and probably used a lot, a lot of their strength to do so. Right. And three, he's just making uh, threats against his family, like Fitz's family. Right. Right. And that's like the big thing that Regal knows he is scared about. That's the one that's thing fair. that Regal knows he cares about. And throughout this whole chapter and the next, they're trying to make Fitz talk or think about where Molly is. Yeah. Constantly. It's like little things are brought up here and there. And that's that's this is the start of it, I think. That's fair, I guess. I get I don't know. I wouldn't say that I'm surprised at the moves that Regal is pulling. It makes sense to me too. I just think the wording is weird, but if it's supposed to be a mind game anyway, I suppose that makes sense. And I don't he also makes a gross comment about like maybe he should try out Molly, and I hate that because I don't like I that felt weird, like a I guess what's going to make a dude mad more than telling him that you're going to try to sleep with his girlfriend. But I don't think it was like, I will try to sleep with your girlfriend. It's like, I'm the king. I'm going to find Molly and she's going to be mine kind of thing. I think it was a little bit more evil than I'm just going to try to woo her. Well, no, no, no. I'm not saying he's trying to woo her. Okay. I'm just saying like in <laughs> like in his mind, like what's what's the meanest thing I can think of? Oh, I'm going to sleep with your girlfriend. Like, I just, I don't know. It. I don't like it. It's skeevy and gross. And it's regal. I know, but like, <laughs> I expect him. better of him. <laughs> you described him. I, I don't even like regal. And here I am like, he's not meeting my standards. I don't know. <laughs> Holding uh. him on this pedestal that he should meet for villainy. But I don't, it just, that part felt extra weird, and I guess he's getting under Fitz's skin. That's the point. But it gets under my skin, and I don't like that. <laughs> Fitz is drenched, soaked, scared. He's heaving for breath, and Kettle tries to comfort him. Brings up, you know, focusing on the game again, because she knows that they got through to him. He kind of goes off on her, like, I can't think about a game right now. This is real life. And... She tries to redirect him back to that, like, this will help. We can't, you can't think about them at all. We know they got past you once. Don't try to focus on them. That's what they want. You know, bring this to your forefront. His threats could be a ploy to trick you into betraying them. Don't talk about them. Don't think about them. Here, look here. Spread out the game cloth and, and recreates the problem. And says, solve this. Focus on this and only this. Fitz tries his best and eventually kind of 
fixes that problem in his head. So this is really heartbreaking because I think it's really easy to put yourself in Fitz's shoes and see how hard it would be not to even think about your child and the woman that you love. How how could you? You know their life is in danger, even if you know that Regal probably doesn't actually know where they are. You still wouldn't you would still be worried about it. You would still it would be so hard to put that from your mind. And I just feel so bad for him in this moment because his frustration is so palpable. It's so real. It's as a reader, you also get frustrated, but Kettle's right. It is dangerous to think about them. You, it doesn't matter that the game is stupid. You need to focus on the game because then at least you're not focusing on them. Mm-hmm. And Ketrickin in this tries to help and say, well, why don't you just skill to them and warn them? And Kettle has to be like, no, that's the worst idea because that gives them a pinpoint to where they are. And I thought that was really interesting because Ketrickin has been told multiple times already that Verity has not contacted her because it is dangerous to do so. Right. And I know that she doesn't grasp the intricacies of the skill and she probably wouldn't immediately think of that. But the concept has been explained. It has been explained <laughs> multiple times and maybe it just is one of those knee jerks like, oh, maybe this will fix the problem. She didn't even think and then realizes, oh yeah. But I also hope that this kind of shows her that Maybe Verity was thinking this exact same stuff of mm-hmm. I don't want to not focus on Ketrickin and my unborn child. I want to know that they're OK. And instead, he just had to keep going. And so not to lessen what Fitz is going through, but I hope in some way that Ketrickin got something out of this right. and seeing like clearly Fitz is upset and distraught and he very well could see directly to molly right the second but he can't right and so hopefully at least that comes out of this <laughs> which would be good but either way it's heartbreaking and sad and i hate it and poor fitz is looking at this dumb game with a board that is full of the white stones and he is supposed to fix it with one black to and one move to win and he makes a comment that why would anyone have let the game get to this point? It like, why it's would you not worth solving? Yeah. Like it's, it's not worth mess. solving. And he holds on to the black stone as they go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as the, the next day when they wake up and are heading on again, he and the fool are both kind of in a despondent, non, not talkative mood. <laughs> and he's holding that black stone kind of comp- contemplating the problem, but not, with a single-mindedness at all because he's in a dark place. Night Eyes kind of knows to give him his space, so he's ranging up ahead and coming back towards Ketrickin, who's holding up the rear with a bow. And Fitz notes that he is relaying what's ahead of them to Ketrickin in passing. Right. He would go ranging far ahead of the Jeppas and Starling, only to come back to Ketrickin and assure her in passing that all was clear ahead of us. I tried to tell myself that she merely had faith that Night Eyes would let me know if she, he found anything amiss on his scouting trips, but I suspected she was becoming more and more attuned to him. So he's having these dark thoughts as well of like a little bit jealousy, a little bit just like 
I guess this is what's happening now. I'm alone and I'm fine to be alone for a while. I think it's really interesting that whenever Fitz is at his lowest or most lonely, he immediately looks around him and instead of seeing the love that is coming towards him, he just looks at the love that he doesn't get. Yep. And only focuses on that part. Like with Night Eyes, Night Eyes is showing him love and compassion by leaving him alone because this is serious. And even though Night Eyes probably doesn't understand even a little bit the concept of why Fitz needs to not think about anything, Mm -hmm. he accepts it and still helps the group. And Fitz, instead of being like, wow, I'm so lucky that my companion is willing to not talk to me for a while after they just had this whole thing about how Night Eyes is feeling really lonely because Fitz won't talk, can't talk to him on this road. Instead of thinking about that, he's like, wow, I guess he'll just replace me with Ketrikin by talking to her. <laughs> and it's like, he has friends. Get over it, Fitz. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just, I feel bad for him because, and that's not fair to get frustrated with him because that's just how he's feeling. I just thought it was really interesting that it seems to be a pattern of behavior of ignoring the love that is surrounding him in favor of the things that make him sad (laughs) on purpose. It's also elf bark aftermath. I think that's kind of affecting both of them, both Fitz and the Fool, because I've highlighted a few comments that the Fool makes in the next couple pages, and a lot of them are just like very depressive and kind of out of nowhere for him. And it starts with him gesturing at a uh, a small flower. It would be spring in Buckkeep by now, he said in a low voice, and then added quickly, I'm sorry, pay no attention to me, I'm sorry. I, I feel like that's kind of where his mind goes, like, oh, we could be back here. I messed up, because he makes some other comments later on. Right. It's like, I everyone could be safe back in Buckkeep right now. I'm so sorry. Pay no attention to me. I'm not worth it kind of thing. Like, I, I feel like this is Elf Bark speaking. Is it, though? Because didn't they have Elf Bark tea together two nights prior to this? Maybe, but he didn't. I don't know. See, that that's the only thing that kind of like really messes with this. But I don't know how it affects whites, first of all, which is an easy cop out to say. True. But it's so there's a couple comments in here that he makes that are very, very different from how he usually acts and yeah. is. That I ha- I felt like I had to ascribe it to something. To be fair, they have it two nights in a row, I believe. They do. So potentially the effects, the negative and, effects linger longer. And, and Fitz made it the second night. Right. (laughs) That's probably grossly strong. I this is like random, but I kind of picture elf bark to taste a lot like. I don't know, like a mix between a mint tea and. Like a green tea, because interesting, I, I don't love mint flavoring. And whenever I drink mint tea, it's so overpowering and it like clings to the inside of your mouth and you just like. I don't know. It just sticks there. And every time he describes drinking elf bark tea, it's what I think of. (laughs) But green tea, because green tea also has that like little bit of earthy aftertaste, I guess, to me. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking of just straight up like burnt tea. Mm. 
burnt That's tea fair. leaves, basically. Because <laughs> he describes it as like really bitter and yeah. I don't know. I so. think. Mint tea has like such a specific feeling it leaves in your mouth that that's probably also what I'm associating mm, with yeah. his descriptor of just like it bursts in your mouth kind of. I don't know. But I don't anyway. Know. I like just mint tea, so I never thought of that. So. <laughs> I like mint tea in certain certain times too, just not too much of it. <laughs> anyway. Fitz and the Fool are walking. I did want to ask why... Why do you think he's like, oh, don't mind me about the Buckkeep comment? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't mind me. It would have been spring in Buckkeep. I, I think it's because of the elf bark, as as I was saying. I think it's because he's he's somewhat aware that bringing up memories related to Molly is bad as one part of it. But also in his head, he's like these are related if I say this out loud and obviously Fitz knows what I'm feeling and I'm worthless. So pay no attention to me. Sorry. I spoke at all. I'm not oh. worth you listening to kind of thing. I, I, I really think it's elf bark making him feel like he's worthless. Right. I, I think I was more thinking, what is there to be sorry about? I understand. I, I, that's so. what I think it is. Him speaking oh. out, him talking at all. Mm. That's why I think he was saying, I'm sorry. Interesting. Because Elf Park seems to affect his self-worth as well as Fitz's. Right. Talk turns a little bit to his sickness. The fool's sickness. Fitz saying that Ketrikan thought it was something like he had had before. And the fool says, yeah, in Blue Lake, my lady queen spent the food money on a room that I might be in out of the rain. He turned his head to stare at me. Do you think that might have caused it? Caused what? Her child to be stillborn. His voice dwindled off. I tried to think of words. I don't think it was any one thing, fool. She simply suffered too many misfortunes while she was carrying the babe. Beric should have gone with her and left me. He would have taken better care of her. I wasn't thinking clearly at the time. So those two comments that he makes right there, I really think, again, this is why the elf part kind of came to me, because he's thinking of the worst possible scenarios and how he would be at fault right. for them. One, if I hadn't gotten sick, she might not have miscarried. Right. It's my fault that the baby isn't born and I threw off the whole future that I was planning and going for because I got sick. And the other one, Birik should have gone with her and left me. He would have taken better care of her. It's just so, so down in the dumps. Right. Yeah, I guess I never thought about it through the lens of potentially being an after effect of Elf Bark Tea. I always just like, maybe he's just having a rough time recovering and like <laughs> I mean, that walking. Could be it. That and, could be it too. But honestly, it like now that you're saying that, it does point out how uncharacteristically down in the dumps it is. I think the only other time we see Fool this sad or self-loathing-y openly and not in like a jokey way at his own expense is after his he's tortured by the Whites when he goes back. Yeah, that... And then also, I would say in this book, still after he quote unquote betrays Fitz, right? We, the coterie like <laughs> infects his mind and gets the information out of him, right? So yeah, I, I would say like anytime that he feels like he 
one betrayed Fitz or two went through a severe traumatic event for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Straight. <laughs> yeah. So clearly Alfbark is no good. <laughs> but I think it also points out that the fool, I think Elfbark would make it worse, but I think the fool is a lot more insecure yeah. than Fitz realizes. Yes. And this is a glimpse into that. I'm sure that we don't really ever get to see anything from his point of view, and we only get the filtered lens of Fitz interacting with the fool, but I'm sure that the fool has lots of insecurities and lots of things weighing him down. I mean, he is even up until this point, he's had trauma in his life. And the fool speaks them out loud too. Fitz just doesn't usually understand. It's usually right. things like, I don't know if I'm on the right path. You right. know, like, did I make the correct choices? He's, he's really wondering if he is leading the world to a worse place Right. Or a better place like he wants to because he didn't really finish his schooling. His teachers really didn't believe in him. He probably has those doubts seated pretty deeply within his psyche of like, am I really the white prophet? I know I am, but they said I wasn't. And am I doing a good job here? I don't have any signs that I am. It seems like later on in this chapter that he gets a good sign. And that might be the first time in like a year and a half. Right. So I feel like it's it's been a while. <laughs> That's fair. But I think you bringing up this next part does get me to something that I was thinking after reading this chapter. And that's the Fool and Fitz are very similar people. Obviously, they have a lot of differences, <laughs> but they are both people who, number one, I guess, are destined for greater things. But also were looked down on by their peers and mm-hmm. their teachers failed them and they are forced to go through life on their own. And I just think it's really interesting how differently they approach the same problems. Obviously, I mean, because they're different people, but Fitz goes, looks at it like he's in a cage. He is a bird in a cage and he has to stay within this cage. There is no getting out, even if the door is open. And the fool almost looks at it as if he's trying to get into a cage. Like he's a bird trying to get into a cage that he knows he belongs in. And it, I don't know. I just think that they're so similar and yet a look at life so differently. Yeah, there's there's a very big difference between the two throughout their whole lives. And one is that the the fool has a goal that he's working towards, I think. Mm-hmm. And Fitz doesn't want a goal, but is forced tasks and told he has to work towards certain goals. And all he wants is nothing in his future, really, besides a simple life. You know, I think I feel like personally, I think that's kind of the thing. He doesn't Fitz doesn't truly believe like, hey, I'm going to save the world with the fool because he's just there for the friendship. And like, I got to do the things that I have to do in the moment. Right. The fool is like, there's an overarching thing I'm working towards. It's interesting that you say that because I think that the fool probably feels pretty trapped by this goal that he has too. 100%. But I think he believes in it. Right. Well, 
it could just be that after so many visions, how could you not? But also, it's better to believe in something than nothing at all, like Fitz does. Yeah, I'm not saying like <laughs> I it's, know, I yeah, know. I I wasn't really um, saying that they weren't different. I'm just saying I think that's the main difference between right. the two. And yeah, Fitz could fully take on the goal of like making the six statues a better person or better place and really taking on leadership and stepping in and staying as the royal family and not hiding out at the end of this trilogy and it he might take us a more similar path that the fool did or become more similar to how the fool acts and reacts to the world and become a more mature person but he hides instead right and the fool goes out to confront that great destiny that goal that he has right well i think even if Fitz didn't want to be as grandeur as save the six duchies if he even just had the goal of be a regular person and like start a farm or whatever like that would be better than what he ends up doing instead which is living in a hut alone until he gets his adopted son and then like kind of taking care of him Fitz, while his heart is in the right place, is kind of the worst parent ever. <laughs> to be fair, he was partially forged while he was raising a child. Right. Which. He wasn't with B and he was still pretty bad. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. But I love Fitz and I think that the relationship he and Hap have is really sweet. And I love, I know that he loves all of his children, it just is frustrating that he is not a better parent for the amount of love that he has. Anyway, that is a big tangent. We should get back on topic. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think the fool is under the influence of Elfbark here and just being so down on himself. And Fitz is the one who is trying to kind of lift him up, saying, like, I would be dead then. Among other things, you know, there, there's no sense in trying to play that with the past here is where we are today, and we can only make our moves from here. And in that instant, I suddenly perceived the solution to Kettle's game problem. It was so instantly clear that I wondered how I could not have seen it. Then I knew. Each time I had studied the board, I wondered how it could have got into such a sorry condition. All I had seen were the senseless moves that had preceded mine. But those moves had no longer mattered once I held the black stone in my hand. Where we are today, the fool echoed, and I felt his mood shadow mine. They talk a little bit more about the fool's illness, and the fool shows off how his skin is peeling, which is very weird because he like scratches his face and a bunch of skin kind of slops off. off. Yeah, Ugh, <laughs> the same on his hand. I think of like wood peeling, yeah. like that, <laughs> but with skin. Ugh. I don't think it's that intense, but yeah. <laughs> Fitz does say it's more like a sunburn. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I just like imagine it like curl. It's like in long strips and it just curls a little bit as it mm-hmm. ugh, gross. <laughs> but he's changing a little bit. And he tells Fitz that he thinks it's supposed to happen. He asks him to look at his eyes to see if they've changed color, too. And... Fitz obliges him, and even though it's still hard for Fitz to look him in the eyes, he does, and notes that they are maybe a little bit darker, but no more than a a pale beer. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an interesting color, but I like it. 
Yeah, no more than ale held up to the light. Which makes me wonder if that means that they have glass cups at Buckkeep. I don't know. Because how else would he know yeah. what ale held up to the light would look uh, like? Interesting. But if they have glass cups, why don't they have windows? True. <laughs> Robin Hobb, please explain. <laughs> <laughs> Our pressing questions needs answers. This is the most important question to be answered of the series, clearly. <laughs> they probably have like crystal chalices for wine or something. But why would you put beer in that then? Because he grew up in the soldiers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways. I don't know Anyways, the, the, the talk kind of turns then towards Fitz asking the fool, why doesn't he know more about what's happening to him? Didn't your elders tell you that sort of thing? What were your parents like kind of thing? And the fool basically has to say they were like yours, human. Somewhere back in my bloodline, there was a white. In me, as rarely happens, that ancient blood is given form again. But I am no more white than I am human. Did you think that one such as I was common to my people? I have told you, I am an anomaly, even among those who share my mixed lineage. Did you think white prophets were born every generation? We would not be taken so seriously if we were. No, within my lifetime, I am the only white prophet. I specifically underline that last line because B comes in his lifetime. And I guess I could mean that B isn't a white prophet maybe it's too diluted i mean technically the fool is during pearl cop's lifetime you know true yeah so maybe he's wrong <laughs> he left when he was right a teenager you know yeah. so yeah he's he's obviously wrong in some aspects but the fool does live to be what he's like he's at least 75 or something in the last trilogy if Fitz is 60, he's at least 77, I think, because he's 17 years older than Fitz at the very least. So that's a long time. I mean, yeah. <laughs> to, to be the only white prophet, you know, there's there is a lifetime there, quote unquote, to make changes or to do your life's work. Right. So I feel like just just guessing in here. That the lifetime of the White Prophets is for them to make their allotted changes in the world. And then when they're done with that, the next one is born or mm. something. You know? Interesting thought. Okay. Maybe why B was born. Because he had given up hope or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I have no idea. But I think it's also interesting that the Fool says that he is not a White. He is yeah. some sort of... A half breed. <laughs> That's like yeah. not a nice thing to say. I just mean that half human, half white. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting because I wonder if that is true or if that's something that he was told at the school and believes. No, I think that is true. There, There's a few stories that come up and I, I, I'm trying to remember if Pearl Cop mentioned something as well. But I believe that the whites were an ancient race and... They knew that they were going to be extinct someday, so they started spreading their genes a right. little bit more, a little bit more deliberately, so that the future of humanity would have some whites, you know, when right. those genes mix together kind of thing. So I, I feel like that is a true thing. They, the, 
the genes, the DNA is diluted, but when they come together in the right combination, you get, and the right time, I guess, right. you get a white. I don't know. I just think it's so hard for me to understand the whites because... Because we know nothing about them. Yeah, we know nothing about them. We do know that when Fitz saves the fool and goes in his body to, like, fix things, he says it feels wrong. Yeah, that there's... Things are weird. Anatomically, it's way different. Yeah. He's a different race. Yeah. So it's... I think a that's... A different species, I guess, not yeah. race. It's really... That part is really interesting to me because doesn't that mean that he is just a white then like or i guess maybe two races or oh my gosh <laughs> two species come together to make a new species but i don't know it just it just is odd to me that he wouldn't classify himself as either when it seems like all the other whites at the tower have no problem saying that they are whites and i can't imagine that they're all like full blood he still calls himself the white prophet and That's things. True. He just can tell Fitz here, like, I'm not pure blooded white. No one is. Right. But we are the whites as as such there is. You right. Know? Interesting. But yeah, it's really interesting. It is interesting here to see him talk because we're getting a little bit more insight for the first time ever about the fool's past. <laughs> yeah, his family and his teachers then, which is brought up next. Mm-hmm. And he goes to explain that they were too certain to know what to, to expect. Excuse me. They planned to pace my learning to reveal what they thought I should know when they thought I should know it. When my prophecies were different from what they had planned, they were not pleased with me. They tried to interpret my own words for me. There have been other white prophets, you see. But when, but when I tried to make them see that I was the white prophet, they could not accept it. Writing after writing they showed to me, to try to convince me of my effantry in insisting on such a thing. But the more I read, the more my certainty grew. I tried to tell them my time was nearly upon me. All they could counsel was that I should wait and study more to be certain. We were not on the best terms when I left. I imagine they were quite startled to find I was gone so young from them, even though I had prophesied it for years. He gave me a strangely apologetic smile. Perhaps if I had stayed to complete my schooling, we would know better how to save the world. I felt a sudden sinking in the pit of my stomach. So much had I come to rely on a belief that the fool, at least, knew what we were about. How much do you truly know of what is to come? He took a deep breath and then sighed it out. Only that we do it together, Fitzy Fitz. Only that we do it together. Goes on to explain that he studied the, the readings and the prophecies and had dreams, but it's so much easier to look back and say, oh, yeah, that's the prophecy that fit what what happened. Mm -hmm. And he explains it to Fitz like if I showed you shears, a sheep and a loom, would you say in your mind's eye, this is the coat I'm wearing right now? Or once you have that coat on, can you look back and see, oh, I see how we got here. Right. It's a pretty good analogy, actually, to understanding how the fool thinks. I also think that when he touches on the fact that his teachers were trying to convince him he wasn't the white prophet, that is very clearly the root of 
his current and forever self-doubt. Yeah. And at first I thought, why would you not see that this is like, first of all, that they're clearly a corrupt organization, but second of all, that they're doing it on purpose because they know you're the right one. They just don't want you to know that. And then I remembered that he went to them when he was a kid. So. And they have been doing it for thousands of years. Yes. So, so it's they're a little good bit, at what they do. Yeah. A little bit easier to. Even if you know later in life that they were wrong, keep on to that because as a kid, you don't immediately distrust all authority figures. <laughs> you just, I don't know. It, it's so sad. The fool's past is such a sad thing. It's a core memory. <laughs> it is. It's a core memory for him. It goes a little bit more into some of these visions. And the fool tells Fitz about one that he had. I saw a black buck rising from a bed of shining black stone. When first I saw the black walls of Buckkeep rising over the waters, I said to myself, Ah, that is what that meant. And now I see a young bastard whose sigil is a buck walking on a road wrought from black stone. Maybe that is what the dream signified. I don't know. But my dream was duly recorded, and someday, in years to come, wise men will agree as to what it signified. Probably after both you and I are long dead. It's another explanation of how it kind of works for him, which I think is a much more clear image for Fitz. Right. Because it's an actual example of what he prophesized and could mean both. And so Fitz, hearing all of this, kind of directs the conversation towards his daughter. Because he says Kettle said that there was a prophecy about the Catalyst's kid. The fool says that there is. Then you think Molly and I are doomed to lose Nettle to the throne of the six duchies? Nettle. You know, I like her name. Very much, I do. You did not answer my question, fool. Ask me again in twenty years. These things are so much easier when one looks back. The sideways glance he gave me told me he would say no more on that topic. I tried a new tack. So you came all that way so that the six duchies would not fall to the red ships. He gave me an odd look, then grinned as if astonished. Is that how you see it? That we do all this to save your six duchies? When I nodded, he shook his head. Fitz, Fitz, I came to save the world. The six duchies falling to the red ships is but the first pebble in the avalanche. He talks about how the red ships are the first domino to fall. That this, if it was just raiders, you know, attacking a kingdom would be normal. It'd be a mundane event in the history of the world. But this is the first domino to fall with the spread of forging with the rise of the traitor's circle with Regal. All of this is a precursor to a worse world. There's something else going on. He says it's there, the first stain of poison spreading in a stream. Do I dare tell you this? If we fail, the spread is fast. Forging takes root as a custom, nay, an amusement for the high ones. Look at Regal and his king's justice. He has succumbed to it already. He pleasures his body with drugs and deadens his soul with his savage amusements. Aye, and spreads the disease to those around him until they take no satisfaction in a contest of skill that draws no blood, until games are only amusing if lives are wagered on the outcome. The very coinage of life becomes debased. 
slavery spreads, for if it is accepted to take a man's life for amusement, then how much wiser to take it for profit. He says that the red ships are amateurs and experimenters, and there is much worse to come if they do not stop. So this is not about the six touchies. This is about the future of the world. Right. And I think that's really, really interesting that we get a touch into why the six duchies is important. It's weird, I guess, to me that they're going to be the precipice for change, that if the six duchies starts being a little bit more savage uh, in how they treat their people in like needing the blood and gore and loss of life and maybe going to slavery, that that's going to change things mostly because they're really close to Chalced and Chalced is basically there (laughs) minus the forging. So it's weird that it's okay that not, I don't think he's saying it's okay. Chalced does it. I'm just saying it's odd that it's not going to change the world that Chalced does this, but See, okay, so I, I understand that thought. Chalced is horrible, like, seems like a horrible place. Right. But the Six Duchies is the first line of defense. And it has always opposed Chalced, as was mentioned early in Assassin's Apprentice. Right. If not publicly with war, it's never said don't battle Chalced to, like, right. stop slavers, you know? Well, they do battle Chalced regularly. I know. Yeah. That's my point. That That's exactly my point, actually. Even though King Shrewd has never declared war and said this is bad, like Chalced is doing terrible things, he's never dissuaded Shokes from battling them. Right. So with Regal accepting of Chalced's, you know, uh, methods eventually, as the fool describes here, that would probably influence the Bingtown traders more, like quicker. And that's why Bingtown Traders were the uh, the other place that the fool goes to as Amber. That Amber takes such a vested interest in all of the traders around there trying to right. stop slavery and the bad influence that Chalced is having. And then eventually Chalced falls as well to have a new duchess. So it seems like it kind of starts with this bad seed in Chalced and the fool needs to stop the normalization of that coming from other sources. Mm. So eventually it's kind of crushed in between all of these, like, no, this is actually bad. Right. Kind of thoughts. So I, I, I really do love this example and I had forgotten about it until I reread it uh, this time around that that was the actual like progression. If none of this had happened. Right. Because it's never really touched on later. Right. But it is a great big picture of why this story is important in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And kind of makes the fool's pursuit a little bit more noble, I guess that it's one thing to say that you're doing something for the good of the world, but then to lay out the consequences of if you fail, right. Being mass death, essentially, (laughs) (laughs) it makes it a little bit more, I don't know. I don't I don't want to say it makes it more honorable because I think it's honorable to want to change the world anyway. It makes it have more gravitas. Yes. More depth to it and more importance than just beyond. I need to save 
my king. Right. Now I need to help him. Yeah. Even though for Fitz, that is enough. Like, yeah. That is more than enough. More than he can probably handle. <laughs> also interesting to me that Fitz has known the fool this long and has heard him talk about wanting to save the world and still is like, yeah, but you're here to save the six duchies, though. Because that's his world. Yeah. I don't know. I just I find that a little bit cute and naive of Fitz. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. They pause for a little bit, take a little bit of a break while they're talking about that and eventually get going again. Oh, all right. I think we'll end it there for this episode. We have a lot to talk about in part two of this chapter. Yes. <laughs> so I think we will stop it there and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you have anything to say to us about this part of chapter 29, please reach out isfitshappy at gmail.com. Or you can message us directly on any of our social medias, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at isfitshappy. Looking forward to the next part. Okay, time for the best part. Well, it's not the best oh, part. Man, every time, every time <laughs> after we talk for over an hour, now we get to move on to the best part. Yeah. <laughs> I like hearing other people's opinions. Your opinion is nice, but I hear it a lot <laughs> but more. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about some stuff that you guys have sent in this time. And we're going to start with an, a couple emails we got from listener Jess. And they sent us... First, some thoughts on how memory stone works. Yeah, from episode 91. Yes. Talking about our discussion of what we think the memories look like. Right. Um, so Jess told us that their image of how it works is kind of like how our brains work with memories and that specific stories can be called up, but then random ones kind of just filter throughout the mm -hmm. day. So... It's yeah. kind of at random, but but you like can. a specific trigger can bring up a certain memory or right. a certain story at that time, which really I, I like a lot because it does fit in one with what we talked about in in this chapter. I think we did, we haven't talked about it quite yet. It's in part two here mm -hmm. coming up. It's a little <laughs> bit long of an episode, but at the end of this chapter, we talk about um, a vision that the fool and Fitz share together right. where they step into the roles of the white prophet. And we think the catalyst, it's not confirmed in that vision, but Fitz fills a role in that. And that seems to be brought forward by Fitz right. and the fool being there. And then the city might have just been one of those random thoughts or random days kind of filtering through. Exactly. Yeah. So that's really cool. They also mentioned that... Um, one of the short stories kind of delves a little bit deeper into the idea. It's um, The Inheritance in Homecoming. And it's written from the point of view of a Rainwild character that in a, like a diary format. And they tried not to spoil too much, but they did say that essentially this person made it seem like you could seek out specific memories once you knew more about the people around you yeah um no more was given and we won't talk more about <laughs> yeah we, we have not read the short stories no just to clarify so uh we maybe we'll do it on the podcast sometime and do like a first <laughs> read through kind of thing but 
we don't have any of the information outside of the main 16 books. Right. So if you're listening and you have not read the side stories either, don't worry. If you have read them and you're listening and you're like, why aren't you bringing up this point? That is why. (laughs) Yeah, that is why. (laughs) It's because we haven't read them. But that's a great theory on it. And I, I really do like that, Jessica. Thank you. Yes. Jess also sent in um, a separate email <laughs> about episode 92 that was talking about the landslide and how traumatic that was for Fitz. And I thought it was a really good reminder that this is something that sticks with Fitz throughout his whole life, that um, he's having nightmares about being stuck on a cliffside when he sees Nettle in the dream world mm-hmm. and that Nettle actually helps him through that cliffside but Mm -hmm. it is a good reminder and thing to bring up that this is something that really truly affects him because he thinks about it like even 10 20 years in the future there's a lot of things about him and cliffs this one yes obviously very tense situation pretty traumatic he could have fallen and died at any point but also i want to make note of the the cliff motif his cabin is right next to some cliffs and he has a bench built out there and he goes staring out over those cliffs at the end of this trilogy with skill longing. He mm-hmm. goes out and skills and it's part of his like addiction cycle too. So there's some interesting imagery with that as well. So it, yeah, it really does kind of keep popping back up in the story, which is good to point out. Yeah. So thank you, Jess. We also got an interesting email from listener Krista who wanted to talk about the lions a little bit, uh, they made the comment that the elderlings probably knew what uh, lions were to be able to carve them because dragons have seen them and then described them to elderlings, which is a really good point and something that I for sure did not consider how the elderlings knew. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the elderlings would know of distant things because of whatever the dragons decide to share. Right. And I can imagine, like, dragons talk or, about things they like. Or riding the dragons around or, the, yeah, to war, you know? Because some of them did that. So, <laughs> so maybe they saw them. But I think it still still leaves the question how Fitz knows what a See, lion is. In my head, I still think they're, like, just mountain lions or, like, giant cats of some kind. Because it, it would stay consistent with, one, with the six duchies right. terrain. And then, two, this is a mountain. Like, yeah. I, I feel like it would be kind of at least somewhat consistent between the two. If they're actual lions, there's <laughs> that question in there still, of course. I'm just thinking, so this is very specific to American listeners, <laughs> but if anybody grew up watching, oh, what's it called? Uh, reading Between the Lions. <laughs> it was, uh, oh, uh, yeah, it's on it's... PBS, which is a like free network. And it was this like. I don't know, book slash library themed TV show for kids. And Between the Lions. Between the Lions. They the song says reading between the lions. And (laughs) I think about it a lot. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it was a it was like a book show, like teaching kids how to enjoy books or something. Yeah. Yeah. And took place in the library. Um, but the main characters are lions, lion puppets. But they would always sit on front of the steps at the very beginning. And so (laughs) and so that's what I picture for the Kelsinger. Nice. (laughs) So if any American listeners, I don't know if it showed in any other country, I guess it could have if it did. 
great. <laughs> it was a great show. It's super great. So, but, yeah. Thank you, Krista. Yeah, thank you, Krista. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, we have a comment on Facebook from Degenhart. And first off, uh, they mention about the theory for Ida and L that Emma had that L was a dragon and Ida was a uh, the elderling. Mm-hmm. Sounds very nice and it makes uh, complete sense and is their headcanon now, which is great to hear. <laughs> Glad to inspire. <laughs> yes. And then also the speculation of Dagon Hearts is the imposition of will on the skill stone in regards to why animals are there or not there compared like the road to the city. So the road, no animals or wild animals go on. We hear from Night Eyes that they're stay away because it's, you know, unnatural. It's unnatural. They're kind of like they wouldn't be forced to go there in any certain situation. But in the memories, we see like dogs running through the city or cats or something Mm -hmm, like that. So Degenhart talks about how the intention was probably set up that way for the road to be a place of passage and make sure there were no obstacles and make sure it was only a place to move through. And then for a city, there would be no such like limitations. Right. And it would let more free movement, I suppose, throughout the whole thing, because it's not so rigid. Right. It, yeah, which I think is a really interesting thought process of maybe the intentions do affect things differently. And I guess we don't ever get to be with Fitz when Night Eyes is in this area. So we don't know his thoughts on the place. We know that they go there together after the end of this book Mm -hmm. for a time. But it is really interesting to think that maybe because with a city, it would probably just be, you know, stay standing. Right. (laughs) That's a little bit easier than something like a road. Yeah, I I knew I was thinking in my head, at least, that intentions were a big thing about creating. I didn't know that they could get kind of that subtle, though. So Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thought. So thanks for bringing that up. Yes. And then also... They do uh, did mention some things on language, which we brought up last episode. Mm-hmm. And I first want to apologize. They mentioned that no languages have English-esque roots, which is true. I misspoke. Thank you for reminding me that English has every other language-esque roots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a misspeak on my part. And um, so it's good to... Let that one be in the clear, everybody. <laughs> um, so nobody else gets mistaken. But they also talk a little bit about how languages might work in the context of the book mm-hmm. and how language in real life does stem from places where maybe we all share a common ancestor, but it's so far removed from that by the time it gets to modern day. It could develop into three, four, five different languages and no one would recognize the original. Right. So that was also a good thing to talk about. And they said that in their mind that Chalcedian might be related to six duchies to speak and Chayurda Chierda? Is that? Chierda, yeah. Chierda. <laughs> so. Chierden, I guess it would be. Yeah. Um, they're 
So those three might be related, but that it's so far back that it's not as easy to communicate between them. Mm -hmm. There's just similar speaking, which does make sense because Fitz seems to pick up those languages the easiest. Mm -hmm. I mean, and Out Islander as well, I think would be another one. I, I feel like Degenhart really groups them together well geographically. Yeah. Like Chalcedian and Cheerden and Six Duchies and Out Islanders are all kind of in that same area. Chelsea and Six Duchies are a little bit more split, so it, we see a much bigger difference between the descriptions of, you know, hearing that versus a Six Duchies person hearing Cheerden, you know? Right. There's a little bit more mountains and defined edge there, so it's maybe a little bit more split. Right. And then... They also split up Jamalian with Bingtown and Rainwild because, you know, there were people from Jamalia founded Bingtown and hence the Rainwild traders as well. But right. it's a trading town, so it developed into its own language. It's isolated more, but they are traders, so they can pick up pieces and bits and pieces of all the languages around. So it's in their head, it's a little bit more of harbor pigeon, as they as they call it. Right. And I think what's really interesting about this is that Bingtown gets its own section because it's so different from the others, from what we hear explain, and the fact that we have somewhere that originated in Jamalia, yeah. Bingtown, Rainwilds, and that changes the language changes from that because of influences of the trade routes that they create but also not a drastic change it, it didn't that founding of bingtown hasn't happened you know thousands of years in the past i think right. it's just a few hundred you know so they're established and they're slightly different but i would guess it's more of like a dialect change than a full language at this point right. which is cool to think of yeah it, and i mean in thinking in terms of like even just the u.s there are dialect changes that are severely different from the southernmost states to the westernmost states. Or thinking of the UK, if you go, you know, 30 kilometers in one direction from town to town, you can change complete like accents yeah. and, and slang. You know, every place is very fractured in that. And it's really interesting to yeah. think of. I Language in general is just something that's so cool to me personally that I think... I like when it's brought up in books because I find it interesting and I'm by no means an expert. I mean, <laughs> I a took a few classes in college. That doesn't mean I know, <laughs> you know, enough to even more than me. So. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But so it's always fun to hear from other people who also know a lot about languages or just like languages as a hobby and want to share. Um, so thank you, Dagenhart, for first of all, correcting me, but also having such a fun insight to what you think each place has yeah. in connection to language. I think that's really fun. And yeah, thank you just for bringing that to my thought process. <laughs> I will be thinking about it a lot. So thank you everybody who reached out. As always, we're happy to hear from you. <laughs>